So hey everybody, it's Jana and welcome to the Advanced Rebellion Dance Podcast. week I have Emily and she is going to be talking about event organization. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Emily. Um, I'm a dancer in New Hampshire, Vermont in the Northeast of the United States. And I host probably, I started hosting in 2004 and since then I've probably hosted about 100 events. Wow, that's a lot. and have they've all been belly dance events i assume like hosting workshops or anything else yep hosting workshops retreats events some small festivals and um shows okay and how many times a year would you say do you put on an event of any kind i i used to run four to five a year and now i've cut down to two or three larger ones Okay. So we have our we have our annual Shimmyathon festival, which we have, and eight instructors rotate between two dance studios in the local area, so that we can accommodate a larger number of dancers, but still keep the group somewhat small. And we do that for two days, which is really fun. And then, um, like for example, in August, I'm renting out a local resort in the area, and we're having three big international dancers come, and we're kind of doing the same thing of rotating through the different groups. Oh, that's nice. Do you mind saying which ones you're going to be having? Sure. Um, it's Lila Farid, Tamla Dahl, and Sahara Saida. Oh, three very good instructors. That sounds fun. Yeah, they're my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned that you like to keep the classes small. What is your cap on students per workshop, or do you have one? Or... Per workshop, um, personally for me, I've been to a lot of workshops where there's 80 to 100 people in a room, and I don't, I don't learn well that way. Mm-hmm. It's hard to rotate the lines, and it's hard with spacing, and um, so I usually count my groups out at like forty. Okay. That's the smaller groups, good. Yeah. And then the larger are forty, but only if there's enough space. Okay. And would you say that the attendance has changed since you first started? Like, how would you say that it is now compared to when you first started doing um, events? I think I think the needs have changed of dancers since I started doing it. I don't think the numbers have changed. I think I'm kind of in a fortunate area where I'm two hours from everything, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of helpful. I'm two hours from Boston. I'm two hours from Portland, Maine. I'm two hours from Montreal, and I'm two hours from New York. So I'm kind of in a, a central location for a lot of people that's easy to get to, and it's not as expensive in the cities to host events where mm-hmm. I live. Um, so it's actually cheaper for people to drive out to me than it is to actually stay in the city and take a workshop. Um, I think that dancers in general, because of the change in the economy and change in the situations and political and whatnot, um, I think more dancers are hobbyists now. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the past, I think there was a lot, there was a serious dancer route. And then there was kind of the hobbyist route, and then there was the, the student route. And I'm seeing more dancers kind of take the hobbyist route, which means that um, what you offer for workshops has changed. Okay, that makes sense. So it's really interesting that you've noticed that trend, because I would feel like, at least here in Germany or here in Europe, it's gone the other way. Like, there's still a lot of hobbyists, but there's definitely more people, at least, that want to be 
professional like teaching they want to be yeah. teachers so yeah that's really interesting yeah i think in the states it's changed a lot because um people don't go out as much um you know especially in like the boston new york city scene where there used to be a lot of nightclubs and people went for entertainment more and more people are staying home and so there's not as many performance venues and actually we have a large quantity of live music venues and our challenge is, is a lot of our musicians are aging Mm. And so they age, the restaurants are finding different types of entertainment rather than dancers. Oh, that's interesting. So what would so, you say your um, much needed tools are for hosting an event? So kind of take us through the process of what, I mean, I know it's a really long process. <laughs> I know it's a lot of work that goes into it, but you kind of want to give an overview of what it's like hosting let's say for example hosting an out-of-town dancer for a workshop okay um for hosting an out-of-town dancer um i always recommend everyone to book as far in advance as possible um one is that you need a lot of lead time and to find the venue and kind of go through the what if scenarios if something else happens say such as an example your venue closes before your event Mm. (laughs) um Always, so you can start planning the plan Bs. Um, but to also give your your attendees as much lead time as possible because they have to plan, they have to budget. And because a lot of dancers are hobbyists now, it takes a little bit longer for them to get time off. Whereas in the past, dancers that were more at a, uh, did this as a full-time job or even a part-time job, they had much more flexibility in their schedules. Mm-hmm. I'm finding that attendees need much more lead time in order to be able to attend. And as an event organizer, that also gives you time to set up a payment plan so more people can attend when you break it down into smaller pieces for them. Um, so when I when I start my planning process, I actually start probably a year, year and a half in advance. Um, it's March of 2017, and I already have 2018 booked. Um, so what I usually do is I contact the instructors, figure out what their, their process is, um, how would they fit within the, the event that I'm hosting, um, and from there, we usually do all the contract arrangements and whatnot, and then um, I get all the tax forms and all that stuff together first before I even start advertising anything. And then from that process, I start kind of letting the leaks get out, um, as in marketing and social media posts of, you know, get the event up as soon as you can. But also before you get the event up, check with other local organizers and make sure that there's not competing events. <laughs> Like, uh, for example, in the Northeast, we have a Facebook group of everyone who organizes things. And we post, hey, by the way, we're, gonna, we're thinking about hosting something like this. Is there anything else in the area? Um, and sometimes we can actually collaborate, which is great. Uh, and then I actually have an organizational kit. It's like a little first aid kit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a box. Um, and I have all of my checklists in it. So every event I have my checklist to make sure that I'm not missing anything. And then from there is when we actually start advertising. How far in advance do you start advertising when you, for example, for the event in August? I'm assuming you already I, started. Or... Yep, it's actually almost sold out. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> yep. that's the other benefit of advertising early as well. Um, I actually opened registrations up last August. Oh, okay. So you do it about a year in advance or so. I- yeah, I do it a year in advance, um, and I always announce the date that I'm going to open registration, mm-hmm. and that way people know in advance when they can go online, when they can register, 
And I, people really, really like payment plans. Yeah. Especially for something that's, I would say that that's pretty big, like three um, big teachers, for example, and you have to kind of plan for that. Um, right. That's good, though. You seem very organized. <laughs> Someone that's very organized as well. That's really good. <laughs> Organization is everything. Yeah. Um, I even have checklists. Like, if I have people helping me the day of the event, I have a checklist that's pre-written of everything that I need them to know. Mm-hmm. And I just carry that from event to event. So if I have someone who's going to help me take tickets, I have the instructions printed out on how to take tickets. If I have someone watching the door or being stage manager, I have a little blurb for them so that... Because, you know, you usually get pulled in so many different directions Mm -hmm. the day of. It's better to have things pre-written so that you know that if something happens that things can still flow smoothly. Do you have volunteers that help you? Or do you have, like, um, paid people for that weekend that you hire to help you out? Both. I have paid staff that work at the studio that help out. And then I also usually offer a couple people... Um, workshop slots in exchange for help. That's fair. That's good. One unique thing that I do that works really well um, that I'd like to share with people is that I actually do membership programs because I host more than one event a year. The benefit of having this format is that if you plan all your events a year in advance, you already have your calendar set out, you can do a payment plan for all of the events. So say you host two to three events a year, January 1st, you could open up that registration, and it's a membership program where they get first dibs for all the workshop slots, and maybe they get a show spot automatically. And then it also allows them to break down the payment plan for all the events at one time. Ah, so you can anyone can sign up for the membership option, yep. right? And yep. is it like a monthly cost? Um, that yeah, goes it's just through? a monthly fee. Okay. Cool. And where can people find out about that if they're interested in coming to your future events? It's on our website at raq-on.net. Okay. And I also have that in the description for the podcast in case anyone's interested. They can check that out. Yeah. That's probably our most, um, our, the, the one thing that everyone usually is looking forward to because then people get their families to buy them a pass for Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like a really good idea, actually. That's really innovative. I don't think I've heard of that before um, in the dance world, but it seems like a really good idea. Yeah, and plus we have fun names for them, too. We have, like, a rhinestone membership, a diamond membership, sparkly membership. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect gift option for anyone listening already planning on (laughs) gifts this year. And as a workshop organizer, what advice would you give to anyone that wants to start teaching themselves? So I think I've seen your blog post before about tips for dancers that are trying to reach out to event organizers. Yes. Um, And I really liked it. And I wanted you to kind of go over that real quick um, for anyone that hasn't seen the blog post or maybe also direct them to the post itself. um, Because I had some really interesting points. Yes, yes, yes. So I wrote that um, not necessarily out of my frustration as an event organizer, but more to help the next generation. Mm -hmm. Um, In the past, you know, a lot of marketing was done on paper. So you'd send in your CD with your clip and you'd have your photo and whatnot. And it it was a physical copy. And a lot of the, the elder dancers or dancers that have been doing this for a long time had their media kits on paper. With, you know, social media and and everything being digital, it is so easy now to make a digital media kit for yourself. Um, and even as me, as when people host me, 
they always come up to me and say, thank you so much. That was so easy. You made it so easy for me. Because event organizers, they're busy people. They have to advertise. They have to market. And our marketing is only as good as your marketing materials. Mm-hmm. So to help us kind of elevate you as a dancer, we the better the marketing materials, the better we can help with that. Uh, so, for example, have high-quality photos, ones with white backgrounds, one with dark backgrounds. Have different shapes and different things. If you teach specific styles, like in folklore, make sure you have some photos of you in a costume or performing folklore. Um, same with a, a YouTube channel. Having YouTube clips up that we can easily pull. And then also having different length bios and having your workshop descriptions already written up. This is also helpful for us, like if we want to host you, but we're not really sure what we want you to teach yet. Having things that are pinpointed, like workshop descriptions and titles that are already pre-made, kind of like a menu of options, is so helpful. And um, a lot of dancers don't do it anymore. And I think it's something that, as a, as a newer dancer, it kind of puts you ahead of everyone else. Um, for example, like my festival, my Shimathon festival, I used to invite people to come and teach. And I got to the point that I was so frustrated waiting for marketing materials, I actually switched it to you can apply to teach. So every August 1st, I open up registration and people apply to teach. Because that means the people who really are taking the time to apply to teach actually have their media kits ready and they're ready to submit them. And it's it's sad that I had to go that way, but it was just a sign of the times and it was just it was too much work for me to try to chase after people. Um, so having a media kit and put it right on your website so it's easy to grab, whether you're even like a Google Drive or a Dropbox where you go in, where you have photos of yourself, you have a short bio, you have a longer bio, you have your workshop descriptions already written up, and then there's a link to high resolution photos and then a YouTube channel. Or if you're using Vimeo, any of them work. But it's just making it accessible for the event organizer. And it also makes you look like a professional. It's like your resume. Yeah, I really agree, um, especially about the media kit. I had an episode a couple of weeks ago that talked about how to create a media kit as well. Mm, perfect. Uh, like why you need one. And I've also written about it in my weekly newsletter. And I'm all for media kits. I'm all for making things easier for the person that you're trying to work with. Yeah. Um, yeah, and a lot of people don't do it. I've had requests. I'm not an event organizer, but even I've had requests where people were like trying to come and teach back when I was living in the States, like I can, I can come to America now. And then they just like, I've never heard of them, which is fine, but like, I don't know you, nor am I the right person to contact. And they would just link with like a YouTube video. And that was that. And it's like, okay. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly where you can put your best foot forward. It's like I said, it's just like, you know, going for a job um, application or a resume. And um, if you if you need an example, I have one on my website under raq-on.net. If you go to booking, the whole media kit's right there if you need an example. And wants to see one how one's like set up. But there's there's tons of other dancers that also have them as well. Yeah. So everybody go and take a look at the website and make your media kit if you have not already, even though by now it should be like the first thing that you should be working on <laughs> if you're serious about teaching. Um, in places, workshops and stuff. Um, Kind of to backtrack, you mentioned that the teachers that you're bringing in this year, I think they're all American, right? Are they? Yes. Yeah. Do you, um, is that just easier to host or is that just how it happened this year? Or do you also host 
international teachers or I will host international teachers as long as they're allowed in the country. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and it's one of my biggest fears as an event organizer is that we may be limited in our education going forward, which is scary in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the United States, for example, as uh, I'm also a CPA in my day job, mm-hmm. um, when you hire someone, you have to get, if they're, if they're a U.S. resident, you have to get a W-9 from them with their name, address, their social security number, or their business EIN. So at the end of the year, you can send them their paperwork for tax purposes. That usually states how much you paid them and in what state you paid them. Um, and if you're working with an international dancer, not from the United States, and they're coming into the United States, you have immigration papers, you have sometimes visa papers, and you also have tax reporting papers. And this is a sticky situation for a lot of dancers and they don't realize it until it's too late. So if you hire someone to come into the United States from outside the country, there's a separate form and it's not a W-9, it's actually called a W-8. And there's a different types of series depending on the situation. If you do not do the W-8 and you do not withhold taxes, from the individual coming in, and it's a high rate. I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's like 30 or 40 percent um, of their withholding and submit it to the IRS for them, and you are found, like say you get an audit or they find out, um, you have to pay the taxes and the penalties, which is, could be up to thousands of dollars. So make sure if you hire someone from outside the country that you have either an attorney or an international CPA that's used to doing things like this help you with the paperwork because it'll save you thousands of dollars going forward. Also, make sure you discuss with the individual if you have to do tax withholding in advance who's actually going to pay the tax. Um, Because in my day job, I've also worked with performing artists and nonprofit organizations. And this is the number one contentious area that happens because it was silent in the contract of who was going to pay the taxes. And if you pay someone, for example, $10,000 to come to the country and the taxes are 30 or 40%, uh, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have it budgeted or you don't have planned expenses, I mean, that, that can cause a lot of issues for a lot of people. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I may have to have you back for another episode on tax stuff, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe another episode, because that's a whole other topic that I have so many other questions about that I yep. think other people would um, benefit from knowing, but let's <laughs> stick to this. Yep. But that's a really good um, point. Yeah, I think the way that I've seen some people do it is kind of, is really risky. Very so I'm risky. glad that you mentioned that because I always think, okay, well, what happens if they get audited? Like, Yeah, if they say they're coming into the country and they're saying they're on vacation and then they do a Google search on their way out with the visa, they may never be allowed back in. Yeah. And so it it's, it's pays to do it right. It covers you. It covers the individual. Um, and I would suggest, too, if you can, if you're bringing an international dancer, pair up with a college or a local university because usually they have departments that handle all of this stuff anyways. And they might be able to get them into an education visa or a, spe- a special purpose visa or an exclusion from a tax treaty in order to avoid any taxation period. Oh, so that's a good tip. Is it, I mean, I'm assuming it's, is it difficult to get someone on a visa for a dance-related thing? I mean... It depends. Depends on where they're it, from, depends on... Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm sure it is. I know about visas in, in the UK when I lived there and here in Germany. That's a whole other thing too. But I didn't yeah. never took too much time to research it in America because I'm an American citizen, so it didn't really yeah. matter. But That's yeah. why a lot of dancers, when they do international tours in the States or other countries, they have multiple event organizers so that they split the fees and they spread it among all of them instead of just having one person take the burden. point are there any other tips that you want to add for dancers that are looking to start teaching or people that are looking to host their first event I mean I know those are two different questions but um, just anything that you want to impart your wisdom on after how many years that you've been (laughs) both teaching and hosting because those are two different beasts I would say I um, organization definitely Create yourself your own media kit and then also um, plan far in advance. Okay, so the further in advance, the better. Yep, yeah, those are the biggest things. I did write an ebook for dancers because I ended up getting a lot of the same questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do have an ebook out there that's an event hosting 101 workbook. It's available on my website for download and uh, it kind of walks you through all of the planning process. Like chapter one is this, chapter two is this, chapter three. And at the end, there's a copy of my checklist that I use. Okay, great. So I'm going to link that to the description so that people can check that out. Yeah. And is there anything that you're currently working on that you want to share? I mean, your event is sold out, so people can't really <laughs> register if they want to. But anything else, maybe for next year, if um, um, you want yeah, to yeah. some teasers yeah. or something? Every year on January 1st, we open up all of our event registration for all of the events for the following year. So, uh, for example, this year we have our Shimmyathon Festival in April, and I actually only have two spots left on that. And then uh, in August, we do have our special event at Lake Moria Resort in uh, Fairleigh, Vermont, with Lila Farid, Sahra Saida, and Tamala Dalal. And I have, I think, about 10 to 15 spots left in that one, but individual workshops are selling out. Um, so we have three tracks going on at all times, so you have plenty to pick from. But if you're, you know, you really want to do like Nubian folklore, I'm sorry, it's already sold out. <laughs> Darn, next year. <laughs> and then next year, um, I'm putting on something really, really cool, but I can't tell you yet. Ah, uh, is there but, any way that you can tell us when you can tell us so that people can get on your newsletter or look on your website so that they know when to expect the news? Yeah, you should know probably September or October time frame. If you get on our newsletter on our website, that you'll be able to sign up and see it. Okay, and that'll be for 2018? Yes. Okay, so people, I will link again the website and where you can sign up for the newsletter and where you can buy her ebook. So definitely make sure to check that out. And we're going to have to have you back for tax episodes. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's another really important topic. Yes, 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 yes. So thank you so much for finding the time to come on the podcast. And you're welcome back anytime to share more things. Well, thank you for inviting me. So thanks, everybody, for listening and see you all next week.